If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me back to where we read this morning. Psalm 119, verses 113 through 120. When you read the 119th Psalm, every, every stanza of the Psalm refers to the Word of God in some way. It uses different terms for it. Uh, sometimes they'll say the law, the statutes, your word, your rules, etc. But it's a psalm that's written in praise of the words of the Lord. And uh, it was a few years ago, maybe about maybe eight years ago, that uh, Mark Dever was preaching at John MacArthur's Church at the Shepherds Conference. And he read the whole psalm, which you don't normally see done in a service. Then he preached the whole psalm which you don't usually ever see done because it's 176 verses. So needless to say, it was a lengthy sermon. So I'm only going to preach from eight verses today. And then, uh, but I want, I want to talk to you about what it says. Now the word, if you, have a, if you have your Bible, you'll see at the top of these paragraphs, they're broken up into, I think it's eight verses every section. And they have these little titles, and these titles are, uh, transliterations of the Hebrew words or Hebrew letters that they correspond to. There's 22 sections, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each of these Hebrew characters has some significance. And so here today, it's Samek. Samek, you could say it like that. And the root word of this means to uphold, support, or lean on. And you'll see that in the reading, if you look at verse 116. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. Let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. Now let's make a short prayer together and then we'll walk through this this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would... uh, I feel feel like I need your help in a special way today. I'm not sure all the reasons for that, but... I pray that you would help me to give the sermon, Lord, and not to trust in my own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit. I pray that you'd be with these, my brothers and sisters and friends who are here today, to hear a sermon from you, from your word. I pray that you would give it to them, Lord, and maybe in spite of anything that I may say that could could mess that up, that your words will sing in their hearts today. I pray for uh, the many burdens and difficulties that are present here. I pray that you work in those situations. Help us to have faith in you. In Christ's name I pray and ask it. Amen. The first thing we encounter in verse 113 is a surprising declaration by the psalmist where he says he hates somebody. I hate the double-minded. One of my guys in my church in Oklahoma one time, he said, why does the Bible say we should love everybody? Then you have like seven verses in the Psalms where it says directly, The psalmist says by inspiration, I hate so-and-so, or I hate these kind of people. And I said, well, I don't pretend to know everything the Bible says. (laughs) But here you're struck with this, I hate the double-minded. If you have the authorized version in your lap, it may say, I hate vain thoughts. So what's, what's the point here? The psalmist is saying that it is okay to hate the things that are false. The double-minded person is a person who is 
unstable, who is uncommitted. And the psalmist is, is singing about, he's writing about his love for God's word. Now he likes certainty. He likes truth. He likes what God's word has to say. He doesn't like to get lost in the gray of theological discussion. He likes the plain black and white truth of scripture. I hate the double-minded. But I love your law. Because the law of God is not double-minded. The law of God does not speak to us with forked tongue, you might say. The Bible doesn't say one thing but mean another. If you ever heard that song by Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven, you ever heard that song? She goes down to the store, she reads the sign carefully because sometimes words have what? Two meanings. Got to be careful. God's word is not thus. God's word is very clear. So the psalmist says, I hate the double-minded, I hate the unstable, I hate what I cannot trust, but I love your law because your law is fixed, your law is steady, your word is the truth. You might say he even hates the double-minded or hates vanity because it's false. And if God's word leads to, if God's truth leads to life everlasting, and abundant joy than false words. False truth leads to ruin. Leads to ruin. In verse 114, the psalmist says to God, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Spurgeon says about this, that sometimes when gloomy thoughts afflict us, the only thing that we can do is hope. When gloomy thoughts afflict us, the only thing we can do is hope. Now, there, there's certain days, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm, anyway, I've been in the preaching business a long time. There's nothing worse than rainy Sundays. <laughs> rainy Sundays and Mondays always get me down. <laughs> Man, I, I hate rainy Sundays because people, you know, it's hard, it, you know, it's hard to get out of bed on Sunday morning anyway. But a rainy Sunday morning, it's even worse. You gotta whip yourself and drag yourself to get down there. It's it's tough, you know, and then But gloomy thoughts, they afflict us, they come. Have you ever had the clouds of gloom descend upon you? And you don't and you wish you, you don't you don't know why? You can go to work happy or be be fairly joyful, and then all of a sudden it's just like whoosh, here it is. And you're down in the dumps. And you got no good reason for it. Spurgeon says, when gloomy thoughts afflict us, sometimes all we can do is hope that it's going to get better. You can just hope that this will not last. And that's what the psalmist is saying. You are my hiding place and my shield. You are the place to which I run when I'm afraid. You are the place in which I cower and tuck myself into. It's you are the place of refuge. And I hope, I feel like things are going to get better because I'm trusting in your word. In the churches that I grew up in, sometimes you would be reading from the New Testament, maybe reading from the authorized version, and they would say, and it came to pass. And the preachers would always pause and say, aren't you glad it came to pass? Because not everything's permanent, things pass through. You can be in a dark season right now, but it's not going to be that way forever. It's going to pass. The rain is going to pass away. The dark times of your life, they're not permanent. They feel like they're permanent. They feel like they're never going to end. 
You feel like you're not going to make it out of it, but you'll pass through it. They, things come so they can pass. The psalmist says, Spurgeon continues, the word of God sets before us objects of hope and reasons for hope. It's God's word that tells us that the bad times won't last. It's God's words that tell us that joy comes in the morning. Weeping may endure for a season, but joy comes in the morning. The sun of righteousness will rise, Malachi says, with healing in his wings. We have hope. But sometimes it's the gloominess of life, the difficulties that force us to run to a hiding place. Now, my kids are all grown now. None of my kids are are afraid of what they used to be afraid of because they're all big and mean. But when they were little, I remember them running to me, putting their arms around me and being a little bit nervous. Sometimes it happens now, me and Valerie will be together and there'll be a big, a big thunderclap or something scary. She'll, <gasps> she'll grab a hold of me, you know, and when you know your woman needs to be comforted and strengthened, what do you do when she grabs your arm? Flex. That way she knows she has come to the right zip code. <laughs> She's come to the right gun show, right? <laughs> and it's those frightening moments that cause us to run. The psalmist says to God, you are my hiding place. God is a place in whom you can trust. You can hide yourself in his arms of hope, you might say. He will shelter you like a hen does her chicks. There's that that very sad reading in Matthew 23 where Jesus looks upon the city of Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. I would have comforted you. I would have accepted you. I would have taken you close to me, but you would not. And I, I wonder if that could be you here today. Are you just refusing to accept the comfort of God? Are you, are you refusing to run to him? Because I don't know why people do things. I can think about why I wouldn't do things. When I was a, a young kid, you know, my brother was a Christian, my mom was a Christian, my dad was a Christian. And some of the reasons why I, didn't, I never wanted to become a Christian when I was a kid was simply because my little brother was a Christian. And I didn't want to be uncool like him. You say, well, that's a dumb reason. I know. But think about how people are. There are people who do all kinds of things for unusual reasons. My friend, God can be a refuge and comfort for you. But you need to run to him. You need to accept his comfort. You have to admit your weakness. You have to admit your need before you can be comforted. I was preaching at a Christian school chapel Thursday morning. And I said that, you know, sometimes... Valerie and I, we're always, we kind of get in a tiff sometimes. And I said, sometimes putting my arm around her, if I've made her mad at me, is like putting my arm around a block of ice and kids trying to kiss a porcupine. And this little kid said, you kiss porcupines? <laughs> Have you ever tried to hug somebody who doesn't want to be hugged? And they're kind of stiff and they don't accept it. Maybe somebody you want to comfort and you try to comfort them, but they're like, ah, I don't want to be comforted. Sometimes we have to accept the comfort of God. We have to 
embrace him. He's there. You say, well, I don't know if I agree with this. Matthew 23 says it. I would have taken you. I would have comforted you. I would have watched out for you. I would have brought you near to me, but you would not. You were too stiff-necked. You were too proud. You were too self-confident, self-sufficient. Turn to the Lord. He is a place where you can hide. Brothers, men, I say unto you that you can go to God with your heartbreaks, with your insecurities, with your problems. It's no, it's no knock against your manhood to get along with God and let the waterworks run. It's okay to get along with God and cry. And say, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't like what's happening here. I don't, whatever it is. He's God. He's your true and loving Heavenly Father. In Psalms 1, in verse 115, the psalmist says, Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. All the commentators say here that the, the fellowship that we have in life can corrupt our vision. We see warnings all through the Bible for those persons who are Christians to be careful who they keep company with because it can affect us. It can affect our joy. It can get us into trouble. There's all kinds of ways to illustrate that, and I'm not going to take the time to do it. One writer says there is no cooperation from the unbeliever in your pursuit of God. A person who is not a Christian, a people who does not have Christ at the forefront of their life, they will be a pain in the neck to you sometimes. I can remember watching my, my grandpa didn't go to church. My grandma went to church. And I remember she'd go in there. And I love my grandpa. I mean, anybody in the world I love, I love my grandpa, Jim Basham. The greatest, meanest man I've ever known. I mean, just, just, just a... Just a just, just a man's man, you know, kind of guy. I, just, a, just a wonderful man. But he wasn't very, he wasn't spiritual. Looks like he, looks like he came to faith in Christ towards the end of his life, for which I'm very, I'm very happy. But most of the time I knew him, he wasn't too high on Christianity. When I told him I was called to preach, he said, well, that's a dumb choice. <laughs> You're going to be broke your whole life. <laughs> Such a blessing, you know. But I can remember my, my grandma going in there and every Sunday morning he'd be sitting in the chair in his drawers <laughs> watching TV and she'd say, Jim? Maybe it was the way she said Jim. Maybe that's why he didn't go to church. Jim? <laughs> my grandma, she got a shrill voice. Jim? You going to go to church today? No. <laughs> he was always chewing the back no, he wasn't going. Then my grandma, she didn't get a lot of encouragement at the house for that kind of stuff. You know, why are you going down there again? What are you doing? It's difficult. No. It, it's tough when the people who are closest to you are not, don't, don't want you to serve the Lord. It can be difficult. Now, for, it's, 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 and it must be so common for all time that in the little letter of 1 Peter that the apostle says to wives who are married to someone who is not a believer, 
It says just to show them Christ in your daily life. And they'll be won by your behavior without the word. It's such an interesting reading, interesting thing to think about. That just living a biblically oriented life in front of your husband or your wife can result in their conversion without the word. And that's, that's a thing to think about. But the, there is no cooperation from the unbeliever in your pursuit of God. Now, there's an expression you'll run across sometimes that's like this. If following God means I have to follow God alone without family and friends, then I'm going to follow God anyway. It's a sad reality. I say sad reality. I don't mean to say it this way. Some people go to heaven surrounded by a crowd of people they know and love, and some people go to heaven alone. So that's, that's the way it is. I've pastored people a long time now, and I've known wonderful people, Christians, they love the Lord, but their wives never get saved, their husbands never get saved, None of their kids seem to be interested in Christianity, but they just serve the Lord, go to church, they're faithful, and they go to heaven alone. I think people like, you know, people like, like my parents, you know, both their kids are Christians. My, my mom and dad had two sons, and uh, both their daughter-in-laws are Christians, I think. <laughs> Talking about my sister-in-law. What are you guys thinking about? <laughs> some people go to heaven in a crowd some people go alone and I, I don't it's, that, that's a reality but people who love Christ they love him without reserve There's not, de- not dependent upon the people around him one old writer says this association with the wicked hinders men from keeping, keeping God's law not only is there danger of corruption but at the best our attention is distracted and our energies can be weakened in our pursuit of the Lord. The people around you impact you and influence you. You have to take stock of the people who you let speak into your life, if I can use that terminology. You gotta let Christ is Lord of all. Christ must be supreme. The psalmist says in 116 now, in 115 he says, Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. He says, Leave me alone so I can fulfill the commands of God. But verse 116 tells me something about that statement. It's easier said than done. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. The decision to serve the Lord, the decision to follow God is difficult And you're only going to be able to make gains in your Christian life with the help of the Holy Spirit. You're going to need God's strengthening. You're going to need God's help. And so the psalmist says, uphold me according to your promise. God, you've said to me thus and so, and if you're going to keep that, help me to live in that reality. Now notice the doubt. Let me not be put to shame in my hope. Sometimes the promises of God seem too good to be true. So he's wrestling with this. Uphold me. Depart from me, evildoers, so I can keep God's commands. Uphold me. 
Don't let me be put to shame in my hope. There's a blessed promise for this in the New Testament. In Romans 10, I think it's verse 11, where it says, Whoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. Putting your faith in Christ is the right move. Putting your faith in God is the right move. You will not be ashamed. You'll f- the, the doubts are there. To doubt is human. The doubt is human. How can the psalmist live this? How can he perform this? He needs the help of God. There's nothing wrong with you as a Christian saying to the Lord, Lord, I need your help to do this. If I'm going to make it to church this Sunday, I need your help to make it. If I'm going to make it through tomorrow as a Christian, I I need you to help me. If I'm going to make this decision, make the right decision, I need you to help me. If I'm going to go through this trial in this valley, if if, 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 if I have to go through it, if it's a part of your plan for my life, I need you to help me. Uphold me and strengthen me. The psalmist hopes that he won't be left hanging by God. Doubting is normal because we're weak in our faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 reminds us that we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust in the promises of God. If you're here today and you've seen the promises of God work in your life, would you say amen? Amen. As you look back across your life? That was a lot of amens from most people, I think. But you have to trust the Lord. You have to trust the Lord. I remember when I was sitting in church when I was a kid, my dad would talk about all this kind of stuff, and I used to think, oh, man, I don't know if this is true. Is it really going to work? Blah, blah, blah. But I, I know God. I know God works. I've seen God work in my life. One, one pastor, not one pastor, one evangelist, he said, Trusting God the first time is faith. Trusting God the second time is experience. The first time is, will he do it? Then he does it. And the second time you trust him is experience. He's done it before, he'll do it again. There's a song the cathedral sang as a, can he, could he, would he? Yes, he can, he could, he wouldn't, he did. (laughs) You can trust God. You can trust him. Now, the last three, three verses here are about the fate of those people who reject God's law, who reject God's statutes. I want you to notice these carefully. Verse 18. When he says you, he's talking about God. He's talking about the person who is the hiding place and the shield. He's talking about the person who is called upon, asking to uphold him and strengthen him. Verse 18, you spurn, you reject all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. People who reject God's word, who reject God's law, they think they're smarter than God. They think that these words have no hold on them. They have nothing to fear from God's word. There's no reason to take them seriously. But if they go away from God's word, if you reject God's word, God rejects you. 
He rejects the rejectors because the reason for their decision is they believe themselves to be too good for God's word, too smart to need God's word. I don't need God's word at all. So they reject it. They find solace and protection in their own ideas. Their own ideas provide them with what they think is a safe place in which they anchor their lives. But it is anything but safe. The Geneva Bible translates it like this. The crafty practices of those who hold your law in contempt will be brought to nothing. You see, you're faced with a choice. Put your trust in God's word or don't. And if you choose not to put your trust in God's words, you're rejecting God. You're not just rejecting his word. Now, the world in which we live in is so, is so wacko, it seems like, that people are all the time trying to separate God from his word. But you can't do it. Now, the word of God is not God, right? This is not God. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. Jesus was a spirit, now flesh, in heaven. This Bible is not God. But this Bible is the word of God. It's the message of God. And so, when you reject God's word, you're rejecting God's communication to you. And people all over the place are saying, well, I don't think God would do this or that. And I always think, his word is very clear about these things. His word tells us about him and what's going on. Listen to Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. We need to take God's word to heart. You spurn. You reject all who go astray from your statutes. Their cunning is in vain. Their schemes and thinkings about it, their justifications for rejecting God's word, it's, it's shrewd, it's thoughtful, it's intelligent, but it's wrong. And it will result in judgment. Look at 119 and verse 120. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Now, you can read verse 19, and he's not saying, I love that you discard people. He says, if you discard, if you cast away those who reject your word, then I love your word. If you cast away those who reject your word, he says, I, then I love your word. If I was, now, how many of you guys are Detroit, Detroit Lions fans? Say amen. Not too many. Wow. But what if I said everybody who is a Detroit Lions fan gets a million bucks? How many of you are fans of the Detroit Lions? How many have we got now? 
Yeah, we got more. <laughs> Some people have character here. <laughs> and they wouldn't say yes either way. <laughs> so the psalmist is saying, if you're going to cast away those who reject your word, I love it. I love your word. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. The psalmist says, if you are going to cast away these people who reject your word, if you're going to cast them aside like dross. Now, dross is a, is a, uh, it's a, I'm trying to think what the, does anybody have an NIV in their lap? The International Version? What does it say there for, in the NIV? What did you say? Scum. Wow. I think from the sound booth we heard slag, dross. They take gold and silver, precious metals, and they heat it until it's white hot, forcing all those pollutants to float to the top. Then they skim it off and throw it away. I remember back in the day when I lived at home, my mom would make gravy and put it on the table, and that gravy would get a little film across the top of it. We just stirred it in, right? Mix it up. There'd be some person out there maybe say, oh, let's skim that off. Just throw it away. This is what the psalmist says. Those who reject your word are going to be cast away. They're as insignificant as film on something. You're throwing it away because they've rejected your word. The psalmist says, this is their fate. And since you're going to do this, I am afraid. I am afraid. The psalmist says, the fate of the wicked tells me that I need to do differently than them. I need to respect your word. The attitude of the psalmist is one of deep reverence for God. And his view of God is such that he is afraid to not obey God. Now, it's worth mentioning something here. Is that the Old Testament is all written under the color of the Old Covenant, which was a performance-based relationship. In the Old Testament, Israel's relationship with God rested upon two things, their faith in His Word and their obedience to His Word. All through the Old Testament, you see, if you do this, then I will do that. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you do not obey me, then I will curse you. That's all through the Old Testament. Because the old covenant that God had with Israel was one of performance, works. Get all A's, you'll get a reward at the end. Get anything less, there's chastisement at the end. But you and I, friends, in the new covenant era, which we are in, in the dispensation of grace, in the church age, whatever you want to call it, our standing with God does not rest upon performance. Our relationship with God is through the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. The book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, that we who are in the new covenant, we have not come to Mount Sinai where the law was laid down. We've come to Mount Zion where the Savior's life was laid down for. 
So, I figure that most of us here who are Christians, we don't always obey God's word like we should. Would you agree with that? But our relationship with God does not depend on our performance. It rests upon the work of Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father robes you in his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ, and you have no sins at all on your tail. They're all taken away. Past, present, and future sins, they're all under the blood of Christ. They're all taken away. So, Our service for God is not a service for God that's rendered to him out of dread. If I don't do this, he's going to smack me down. Isn't that how our kids are sometimes? If they don't do their chores, what do we do? Yell at them. Take away their allowance. Let the air out of their car tire. (laughs) I mean, there's some kind of punitive action that takes place. If they don't obey us, and they serve us out of dread. I used to do stuff just to keep my mom off my back. Anybody have that same experience? Just to keep her off my back. So, with God, for those who are in the new covenant, our service for him is able to be one that's without dread. In in the letter of John to, in 1 John, it says, Perfect love cast out fear. We serve him not out of fear. We serve him out of love. Now, if you're here today and you're serving the Lord out of fear, not because you love him, you're doing it the wrong way. Serve him because you love him. Now, I've been married to Valerie for 25 years. And, you know, she's got this new teaching job. And she's just, she's just going like, uh, she's got a thousand plates and she's spinning them all. All over the house. I mean, she comes home, she's marking papers, you know, and cussing, and just, <laughs> she, she is, she's just working like a dog. And yesterday, she told me yesterday evening, she said, I came home, I did eight loads of laundry yesterday. You know, she's doing all the laundry, and I say, well, what could I do to help? And she's like, nothing. <laughs> I don't know what I can do, I have very few skills. I could preach her a sermon every day. <laughs> I could write her a sermon just for her. <laughs> and then she, she watched, she, she, so I was, last night I was talking to her, and you know, I, was, you know, I appreciate all the things you do. You know, she, she, she works, she does the laundry, she does the menus, she does the Walmart grocery order. All I ever do is go down there, I call and say, I'm here to pick up an order, I just pick it up. She does all kinds of things. She does, she's, she, she's the, the chief financial officer at our house. She pays all the bills. I just give her my money. I don't even know if I have any money. I'm like Potiphar. All I know is what's set before me every day. I have no thought of anything else. She just does and does and does. And what do I do? I read books and write sermons and try to catch fish. It's very tough. <laughs> but you know, and sometimes, and she, you know, if the kids need something, you know, she buys. Just why does she do that? I've never told Valerie. Look, here's all your responsibilities. Do it. 
I've never said that to her. None of the kids have ever said that to her that I know of. Why does she do all that for the family? What drives her? Up at 4.45, 0.4.45 every day. I get out of bed, you know, 0.5.30. She's already been up almost an hour doing stuff. Why does she do all that? Is it it dread? Maybe she's afraid of drowning in laundry. (laughs) What is it that motivates her to do that? Sisters, what is it that motivates you to serve and minister to your families like that? What is it? It's love. It's love. Love for the family. Love for those children. Love for your husband. And you don't even, and, and sometimes you feel unappreciated. Even when you're unappreciated, you still do it because your love overrides everything. And my friends, in our service for Christ, it should be the same. We just love for him. The more you love him, the more you should I say should. I don't have to say should. The more you love him, the more you serve him. Because you care for him deeply. You care for Christ. You care for his church. You care for the brothers, the brothers and sisters. You, it's love. Love makes everything different. Everything different. Now. When Charles Bridges talks about the love that God has for believers, he also talks about, in his commentary, he talks about the security of believers. And this is, this is in his commentary, and I could leave it out easily, but I want to share it with you because it's so tasty. Charles Bridges says that believers alone can stand on the very edge of hell's pit without fear because we are held secure by the chains of God's everlasting love that are fastened to the rock of ages. We're secure by Christ. And you can dance a jig on the edge of hell, and you ain't going to fall in. You're in no danger because those cords of love are around you. God loves you. And God didn't do this because we deserve it. God doesn't keep on loving you because you've earned his love. He loves you because he decided to love you. That's why John can say in 1 John 3, in the authorized version, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. God's love for us is demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now you got three choices today. I'm going to give you these three choices. You can reject God's love and face the consequences. You can reject it and face the consequences. Secondly, you can try to keep the commands of God in an attempt to win God's approval and favor, and that's going to be 
a very disappointing task. Or three, you can accept God's love. You can accept the gift of God and entrust your soul's fate to Jesus. You can give your whole self to him. You can give your whole rotten, wretched self to him, and he will cleanse you and wash you and make you clean before him. Clean in his eyes. These are your choices. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you bless your word to our hearts. I pray that you bless our time as we take communion together this morning, as we consider and remember the death of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you bless it in Christ's precious name. Amen.